Isn't it amazing what social trust can do? And also not having anxiety. Like, Aziz, if Christian, if it were me that Christian was doing that with, I I would have had all kinds of flustery incompetence. um, And you didn't. You had this, that was very fluid. (laughs) Christian's laughing at me. (laughs) I've learned to fake technology for my children. (laughs) (laughs) How old are your kids, Aziz? Eight and three. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you're still uh, maybe the eight year old starting to get to the point where the, yeah, no, the, the eight year old uh, can do can do technology. Yeah, yeah it's, it's scary these days. Yeah. <laughs> My kids are 17 and 19, almost 18 and 20. And uh, boy, talk talk about not having a, an instruction book. For, yeah. You know, wow. there, I, there was no modeling like my parents didn't have to. You yeah. know, monitor the internet uh, when I was a kid. Maybe they had. Maybe they should have done more monitoring. <laughs> my mom listens to the show, so my, you did great, mom. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> but there were no models about this stuff, so yeah, it was t- it was tough. Maybe it'll be easier for you, Aziz. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So this is the part of the program where both Christian and I guess how you say your family name, and we both get it wrong. Remarkably enough. Shoot, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, enthusiastic about hearing what you uh, how you think it's pronounced. <laughs> okay. Should I go first? Yeah, why don't you go, go first? first? I think it's hook. Uh huh. As in by hook or by crook? Oh, kind of, but I think it's a slightly different uh, sound. But okay. this isn't my. I have no. That you know, this is just a pure guess, and I'm uh-huh. I, I'm an idiot with most languages. Right. No, 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 no. And uh, and my guess is huck, as in huck that, Finn. That is exactly right. Oh, oh that <laughs> never happens. All right. Well, wow. This this is not going to make it into the show. <laughs> <laughs> Joe is correct on it. Wow. So so it's just a pure Huck is in Huck Finn. Yeah. Oh, nothing fancy, huh? Like it. Mm. Oh well, I, my hat's off to Joe. He finally he got a name. Yeah, it had to happen eventually. I mean, you know, you let a you let a blind pig ruffle around <laughs> long enough, they get a truffle. <laughs> How do you want to get started, Joe? Aziz, you've written so much, but Joe had uh, had picked out one particular article, which is particularly apropos of our times. Um, and m- I don't maybe have the... even maybe by of our times, I mean maybe even like this week, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, Go ahead, Joe. but then again, not because uh, the the paper. I mean, one thing that's that I like about the paper, and I don't have the full title at my fingertips. I just think of it as Apex Criminality. That's the in my mind. That's the short title. Um, yeah, but, uh, and, and the and. One one thing that I think is very uh, helpful about the paper is that it says, you know, actually it's useful to not talk about particulars. It's it's useful to ask questions about institutional design, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, in a comparative constitutional framework, mm-hmm. try to think through. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you got if you're going to use a constitution to create a political system and get it up and running, mm-hmm. uh, uh, how do you think through questions about? Um, criminal activity by by apex actors and uh, you seem to focus on and um, i'll have to say here joe this is like that that approach is very consistent with the dominant kind of approach of our show and maybe both of us as scholars right it's like you know whatever arguments there are say about originalism or interpretation like these are whatever the merits of those those are like less interesting to me as a scholar than questions of like pure design and um you know what would be the best way to do this and then thinking about well you can argue separately. Does our constitution do it this way? Is an argument that sort of thing, right? right? From an yeah. institutional perspective, but the but and so it, Aziz, I took you to be focusing principally on the executive and maybe secondarily on on the judiciary. But 
but maybe you want to lay out a bit more like what do I have that right you and what really focus is. on legislative leaders for but, example but also what the project is what is apex criminality what is the yeah, problem of course that's being but, solved? It, yeah, but yeah. to get it get get it kicked off it... sure uh, so I, I I agree with you that it is helpful particularly in a scholarly context to generalize questions away from the particulars of political controversies that are front and center on a daily basis, uh, if only because people's priors about those political controversies tend to crowd out the, uh, the, the I think, hard normative and legal questions that often arise and that are more profitably answered by thinking about the, the questions in a more general frame. Uh, and that's not to say that the political questions are not important. They're not worth thinking about or uh, confronting. Uh, it's just that one role for scholarship is playing a more uh, general, uh, is giving answers to more general questions rather than to kind of the, the, the specific controversies of the day. And so what the article tries to do is to tee up a, a question that gets asked and answered in a relatively specific fashion in the US context uh, as a more general question of constitutional design. And I, I should say that the question of con constitutional design writ large has been one that's of interest to me uh, for autobiographical reasons that I used to work in a think tank that uh, looked at constitutional design in other jurisdictions and, uh, and to some extent advised constitutional writers on how to put down rules for a new policy. So it's a it's a context that for me at least is a is is alive and uh, and, and, and real one. Uh, but I think it's useful for thinking about the uh, about some of the questions that confront the US today too. So what I mean by apex criminality is when an actor is either elected or appointed to a position of substantial practical authority. And by and large, that means executive branch actors. I think it, 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 it can be judicial actors, although I think that they're, that they're of secondary interest. Uh, it can also be uh, legislative actors in a parliamentary system where a prime minister and his or her cabinet come from the ranks of a legislative house, but by dint of the parliamentary system are also exercising a substantial measure of practical governmental authority beyond the legislature's bounds. So in, in all of those cases, you have an official either elected or appointed to a particular role exercising a substantial measure of governmental authority in that role, often with respect to questions of law enforcement. And precisely because there is that substantial measure of authority at stake, there are questions about how the misuse of that authority is to be addressed. And in the US context, we, we ask and answer that question through the lens of the elements of Articles 1 and Articles 2 that speak to impeachment. But other jurisdictions, other constitutions think about the questions in many different ways. And I think it's worth stepping back and asking, well, if we were starting from scratch, how would we think about this 
distinctive problem that arises when we you have representative government delegating authority to officials, either elective or appointed again, uh, who might abuse or uh, uh, redirect their legal authority in ways that violate criminal laws. So that that's the core of the yeah. project. That's the question that the, that the project starts off with. And, and when you set it up, there there are kind of two questions uh, about kind of scope of, of this particular design question. The first is uh-huh. the, the who question, and you kind of address that. It's these it's these high government officials um, for whom like the ordinary criminal process wouldn't wouldn't necessarily apply very well, or we have some questions about it because of their kind of control or influence over that process. And the maybe constitutional implications of of uh, of charging them, and, and and then the 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 what question you say in the paper is is um, oftentimes people you know um, uh, debated a lot, but maybe is not all that interesting. You you restrict this at least this design question to like serious ordinary crimes, and then maybe but but also this things like you know murder, kidnapping, you know serious felonies, but then also. Those kinds of crimes, which are kind of uniquely within the the um, uh, w- within the competence of someone who in that position, so like bribery and um, certain kinds of misuse of of power in treasonous ways, for example. Um, so, do I have that right? That these are the basic parameters of the question. I, I think that that's right. I, I think that there are three kinds of criminality that we might be concerned with if we're thinking about people who wield great amounts of governmental power. And then there's one category that's adjunct to criminality, but that, but that isn't criminality itself. The three categories of criminality are, first, serious crimes that in the ordinary course of things, we would have no hesitation in recognizing and punishment, punishing. So I'm thinking here of what in the uniform crime reporting system would be described as violent felonies, murder, rape, uh, serious kinds of uh, robberies involving uh, physical violence, right? Um, It's not clear to me why one would ever think that there's uh, a, um, a categorical immunity or any kind of special protection for individuals who have substantial government power to commit such acts, right? Um, I think that there's an interesting question about law enforcement officials and when law enforcement officials use force, but that's not really the the question that I've got on the table. Yeah, let's, let, to... yeah let's come back to that, but get out the other two categories uh, first, yeah. Um, the, the, so the, the second category is, is when a government official, because the, they have a measure of discretionary authority can commit a crime that the rest of us cannot. So I'm thinking here of offenses like bribery or corruption, where the possession of official authority is a predicate for the commission of the crime, at least in in certain form. And then the third category is uh, what might be called gross crimes of state, right? And I'm thinking here of the, the 20th century examples are things like the Holocaust, the uh, uh, purges and show trials in the Soviet context, uh, the Great Famine or the Great Leap Forward in the Chinese context. And, and people will have examples from the American context, although I think that those may be somewhat more controversial. But are those crimes that are that are through the state or against the state? Those sound more like through the state. I, I agree with you. And I would categorize that third category 
third type of crime distinctly from the first two. I think yeah. when the apparatus of the state as a whole is turned to an enterprise that, at least retrospectively or from the outside, we recognize as criminal. So, for example, I, I think that the Nazi case is actually the easiest case here, where I don't think we have any trouble today, and I, I, I would hope that at the time one would not have any trouble recognizing the Nazi state, particularly when it turned to uh, uh, the extermination of whole groups of peoples, as fundamentally a state that was committed to a criminal, a, a deep, whether you describe it as criminal or deeply immoral, I'm not sure much turns on that distinction. Yeah, it's a kind of criminality, though, that you have to, in order to appreciate, you have to look at externally uh, from the state itself, right? That, it, it's a kind of criminality that, as a practical matter, certainly it's very hard to see how the state itself will remedy. Um, and and, 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 and uh, this is why we have a set of questions that arise around transitional justice or international justice, uh, which I think are teed up by the fact that when the state itself turns to the commission of something that is grossly criminal, it is rarely the case that the state itself will provide remedies or redress for that criminality. But this, the state also faces conceptual problems with such crimes. If it tries to point to some internal reference, you know, if 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 there is kind of authorization, strict legal authorization for um, programs which are, kind of shock the conscience or uh, you know, it pushes on, uh, it pushes legal actors to identify, you know, more open textured reasons within the system to identify criminality. But, but ordinarily, we think that, you know, that with the Nazi example, for example, that, mm-hmm. that it's, its main like legal failing was external to Nazi law itself, right, as measured against some norm external to, to Nazi law. No, that's right. But legal systems can have constitutional norms that are supervening over the regular norms of uh, legislative rules and that provide a moral point of reference from which the the legislative rules can be challenged. So, for example, the German constitution very famously um, has a non-derogable commitment to human dignity in um, in its first articles. And, and that's very much a response to um, the history of Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. Uh, and were Germany to engage in a policy that arguably was authorized by legislation, but that was inconsistent with that human dignity principle, one might hope and imagine that there would be internal challenges to uh, those policies um, from the perspective of the Constitution. Right. I, I mean, I guess my point is that that these kind of open-textured commitments to dignity or to due process um, in, in one way might be an attempt to convert crimes through the state into crimes against the state, like to, to leave those that, that option open. And there's it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because the, the, the more open-textured that commitment and, and the, the more that one who wants to attack that kind of the state itself can, can operate within the state. I don't know if I'm saying that very well, but but that that line that Joe um, uh, initially put forward of crimes through the state, crimes against the state, like mm-hmm. there's always going to be an effort to kind of prosecute crimes through the state as crimes against the state. It might be easier to imagine it, Christian in a federal context, the point you're trying to make. Like you can imagine a sort of a criminal counterpart to Section 1983 that were aimed at state governments. 
Right. And so that the national due process guarantee could be the ground of a federal criminal prohibition on, let's say, the conduct of state governors or state sheriffs or something of that nature. Well, well 1983 was based upon a criminal uh, provision in an earlier iteration of the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not it's not too far fetched. Um, I, I think what this discussion brings out is that is that where you have, um, as Joe nicely put it, a crime being committed through not against the state, you have a different set of problems, and you ought to analyze those problems and think about the institutional responses to those problems separately. Yeah, so I mean, it seems sp- more obviously political, right? I mean, the crime through the state is is a matter of like political contest. It doesn't mean that that there isn't some sh- you know morally shocking behavior, but like it is a fundamentally a political battle. Whereas crimes against the state, one thinks of as well, you're a criminal, right? And in fact, it's the worst kind of crime. And so it, it makes sense to me that there would be a lot of contest about. And part of your article kind of turns on this, like the the difference between the legalistic view and the uh, political view. Um, and and this the erosion of the line between the two, like that, that there would be a lot of effort to try to convert what looks like a political contest into, in fact, a legal contest. I, I so I think I think that the line that you're referring to is a different line from the one that I'm drawing. I, I, I think that I, I think that that when I talk about apex criminality, what I'm interested about are what you're describing as crimes against the state. I think in those instances, there's no. There is there is often little or no dispute that the crime itself is a moral wrong. I think in the cases where a crime is committed through the state, even if we in retrospect can recognize what's done as a moral wrong or a gross moral wrong, there often will be doubt among the actors uh, who are in possession of state power at that time, as to the moral status of their acts. And the doubt might take the form of conflict between, as you've rightly said, the general uh, open textured constitutional rules and the specific legislative commands. Or it might just be, uh, as it was in the 1930s and 40s, a a debate or a question about whether the law itself is, is just unjust in reference, uh, by reference to some external criteria. I, I actually don't think that, that, I think that that's a set of problems that arises when you have crimes through the state, which I think is a nice way of putting it. And I think what I'm interested in is, is actually the set of, of crimes against the state, which it, there's no real question that, that, that um, engaging in corrupt behavior or taking a bribe or committing a murder or sexually assaulting somebody is a moral wrong or as a criminal act. No, nobody's debating that, right? What gets debated and politicized is whether the act happened or whether the relevant mens rea or the like was, uh, w- was present, such that the act should be treated as within the bounds of the criminal, right? That's a different kind of debate. And in terms of the scope of the project, because that's how we started with these three different uh, start to, sorts of criminality. In terms of the scope of the project, given that you want to focus on the first two, I take it we're, we're asking questions about coping with apex criminality in the context of a Republican form of government. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of hard to, uh, and maybe this can kick us away from those, the, that, yeah. that third category once and for all, but, the, but the, yeah. it's sort of hard to imagine having this conversation when the person you're talking about is Charles I, right? I mean, he, it, he is the state. Uh, in, in, at least according to his own conception, um, 
before he's brought to heel at Naseby. So it's it, it's it's sort of like in that context, how do you even the, these all sort of blur together? But but if you're talking about a republican form of government, even if it's an aristocratic republic rather than democratic republic, you you have to figure out how to manage these these sort of conventional criminality and and abuse of office criminality. I think I would I, I would agree. I would frame it in terms of democratic governments um, and uh, uh, distinguish democratic governments from autocratic or semi-autocratic governments. I, I wouldn't use the republican form of government uh, phrase just because I, I think republicanism is a is a term that encompasses a variety of potential theories of government. And I, I'm I'm uncertain enough about what people think it means that I, I try and avoid the term. <laughs> it's it's funny because you, you your reorientation. The, I, I I did write down a couple of things, and one one of the things I wrote down were uh, as I was reading through the paper, trying to capture a few dualities that you point out, and trying to both specify the project and to create categories that may cause you to design in one way or the other. And yeah. and the first was this against the state through the state distinction. I got that one, and then was minor and major. Because uh, at one point in the paper, you distinguish uh, the Bill Clinton um, uh, sexual scandal, and and you include Trump's emolument problems in here too. Maybe we can talk about that uh, from more serious crimes of of various types. And then I wrote down types of societies, um, and maybe this is exactly the point that you guys are talking about right now, right? That that it, from a design perspective, the 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 uh, the form of government, but also maybe more about the culture might and your expected that that might influence how you write these things. And then the last one was uh, was whether the crime tends toward entrenching or not towards entrenching. Um, and so maybe you would want to make that distinction. I, these are just four of the ones that I noticed, like right off the bat. If you're a designer, thinking of constitution maker as a designer, you're saying, okay, what what particular design problem am I solving right now? I'm focusing on criminality by um, by apex officials, right? And and so, what kinds of problems might arise? How might I solve? Those are four that I came up with. Is am I, am I on yeah, the right track? Yeah, I I think that those are all present in the paper. I, I think the way that I would summarize the the core of the paper's argument is as I think a constitutional designer, when they're thinking about this this category of crimes against the state that you've articulated, um, first has to ask whether they need to write down the substance of the relevant criminal law, whether they need to define that. Uh, and I say that it's probably relatively straightforward to do that. It's probably relatively easy to say there's some category of violent felonies, there's some category of institutional self-dealing that we all think should be criminal. Uh, so that's not hard. Um, so the real question is one of process. How is it that uh, individuals who allegedly commit acts of apex criminality are brought to account. Um, and I, I make two points there. The first point is, it's not clear to me that this is a priority that constitutional designers need to address, right? Uh, it, it, constitutions can be shorter or longer, or they can leave things out, and this might be something you want to leave out. That's the first point. And then the second point is, in thinking about the process or the mechanism through which apex criminality is addressed, there is very roughly a choice between legal and political mechanisms. And it's not clear that either one is always going to be superior. But in thinking about the options, thinking about those two options, one might first want to think about how the choice between them 
influences the kind of political culture that one will get. And second, one ought not to be hung up on which branch of government a particular institution should be in. You can have institutions that look legal, either within the legislative or the executive branch, and you can have processes that look political, again, either within the the legislative or the executive branch. Can we take the first of those two things first? Because the, in a way, the most surprising or counterintuitive thing to me in the paper, uh, and, it, and it happens fairly early in the paper, is just wrestling with this question about, you know, maybe this isn't a topic one wants to say very much about in the Constitution you're writing at all. Um, and that genuinely took me by surprise. Um, so, but, but you and made some... Pr- ours. Hmm? This, and this is our Constitution's approach. It certainly is yeah, to yeah. Uh, to a degree. I mean, it's in there, but it's but not much is said. Um, uh, uh, famously, that, that, um, that's right. And 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 so I, so I I would I think that the best way to approach the question is by thinking of our constitution and by noticing that it doesn't in fact say that impeachment is exclusive. So you can read the constitution as giving an option, the option of impeachment and leaving open the possibility of other kinds of legislated mechanisms of removal. It is a prevalent assumption among those who read the Constitution uh, professionally as scholars that uh, the expression of one idea excludes other ideas. This is a famous canon of statutory interpretation and constitutional interpretation. It's not without merit, but it's not at all obvious that that's the right way of reading the document. It's not at all obvious that we need to read the document that way, just as we don't read the the word Congress in the First Amendment to exclusively refer to Congress. We we just don't think that that, that the First Amendment is just about legislation. We also think it's about executive and judicial action. So the first thing to notice is, well, actually, maybe our Constitution says less about this question than people think it does. Right. And and once you have that possibility in view, I, I think it becomes easier to, to say to yourself, well, really, do we need to address this question? How important is this question in relation to other questions that we might address in a constitution? And given that we, the constitutional designers, have limited time, limited political capital, is this where we want to expend our time in political capital, or is, is there something more valuable that we can be doing? That question is basically whether you want the immunity question, if you want to think of it that way, decided mm-hmm. ab initio, or at the time, or, or or you want the people to muddle through as it comes up. Because you know, one one perfectly seems to me sensible way of reading the document, you know, absent mm-hmm. any deeper investigation into uh, our antiquarian constitution, as you call it, and 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 you know, old debates, is that you know it sets out like how you choose the president. What the president, what the president's official powers are, and how you can re- remove the president. It, it refers to the office. It doesn't say like there's no provision in there about whether the president has to pay taxes. Uh, there's no provision about whether the president is subject to, uh, you know, traffic laws. I mean, and and there's no provision about whether the president is subject while in office to criminal statutes. And and so, it, one need not read this as you know the the impeachment is the sole remedy for criminal violations. I mean, that's kind of your point, right? You could you could. You could read it this way. I mean, another, another. So, so one thing to to take from the point that you just made, and to spin into a more general uh, point, is once you start to think about responses to criminality by apex actors, you suddenly realise that it's actually a very complicated question. Because as we have canvassed earlier in this conversation, 
there are a range of different forms of criminality of different levels of seriousness and involving different uh, kinds of official power. You can imagine, for example, offenses that require official power, offenses that, that have nothing to do with official power, or even offenses that, that sit on, uh, on the fence between those two categories, uh, where official power is, as a matter of, of happenstance, employed to commit a criminal offense. So, for example, if, uh, a, a, if a, an elected official runs someone over purposefully while they are on official business in an official vehicle, right? That might be a criminal offense. The instrumentality is one that's supplied by uh, the state. And in some sense, the person was acting in their official capacity when they, when they did the act, right? And it's not clear how we should think about that. And, and you might have a different rule for frolics and detours and... Yeah, right? absolutely. I, yeah. yeah. So, so, but so, so the, the, the point is not so much there's a right answer to any one of those questions. Right. The point is, is that once you start to think about it, the problem becomes very complex and plural. And, and so the more complex and plural the problem seems, the more it makes sense to punt. And so you said muddle through, right? That that was the sort of pejorative way of describing. (laughs) Well, well, let me just say this. I I don't I don't mean that pejoratively because in the the land use literature, for example, there's a there's a classic distinction between planning and muddling through and and planning has uh, some advantages, but also leads to these kind of over planned cities, which are sterile and muddling through can sometimes lead to diverse, interesting neighborhoods that would be illegal to build today, like in New York or certain places in Philadelphia. So, so it's kind of trying to tap into that idea that, that muddling through versus design uh, uh, ab initio can, can actually be the preferable strategy. And you can think of common law forms of constitutionalism and legality as systematized uh, means of muddling through, right? Right. Um, and, and, you, and, and you might, you know, once you, once you, you recognize the common law, as in effect a, a way of muddling through, it, one might one might start to realize. Well, actually, there's virtues to that. There's there's a kind of modesty in one's ex ante. Uh, there's 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 a modesty about one's capacity before the fact to anticipate and uh, write down good rules for all possible situations. There's a a willingness to allow for flexibility and for learning over time that that might all be well warranted and quite sensible and all of that might lead you to say well i'm i'm just not going to put pen to paper right when it comes to this particular problem and, and it just shows that the 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 designer's problem is not just where should certain decisions be made or or even like what are the guardrails around those decisions these are you know if you're trying to write the rules of a board game you might try to specify all of the possible outcomes and and what to do in each situation um, and this is kind of a generalization of the rule standards mm-hmm. debate in a way but but also the designer has a when question to answer and that when question is not only I either decide you know uh, this particular issue right now or I punt so it's decided at some point in the future but there are also other ways of of crafting a document or crafting a, a constitutional culture, which would be, which would allow decisions to be made later. One of them is, you know, you try to shape things in a way that that leaves substance open uh, to decision at the moment. 
where there's this is like the, the, the grant to, uh, to Congress of the power to pass laws. Right. I mean, there's no. Um, uh, there's not, we don't think that's a, there's not kind of a common law legislation model, which is imprinted on Congress so that one piece of legislation kind of constrains what they can do in a later piece of legislation. You know, famously it's, it's the opposite of that. Um, but on the other, so, but you might think that, that, um, you know, we, we're not faced with a president who's kidnapped or committed murder yet at the time of writing this constitution, um, or amending it. And so maybe what we want to do is not say much, um, and then, the, but we know that the first time this comes up, there'll be a precedent which is made, which in fact does have a constraining effect in the future. So there are kind of multiple ways of, of assigning decision-making through time. One is to insist on a constantly open texture or a constantly open field. Another is to make, you know, you could read, I guess, the impeachment uh, clause is somewhat suggestive of something, but leaving a lot of room for people to debate and for precedent to harden over time in the face of experience. That, that's right. You might have different rules of precedent, and then you might have different rules of meta precedent. Right. Uh, uh, so, so you you might have a system with strong or weak precedent, and that's true in the judicial context or in the uh, what scholars now call historical gloss context. And, and you might have different rules of meta precedent, which is the rules about how you treat precedent. And, and notice that again, the U.S. Constitution is actually silent on both of those two questions. So is there an interaction between um, how one assesses the the wisdom uh, or prudence of, of saying little uh, as opposed to saying much and um, amendability and how easy or hard that is to do? Because the mm-hmm. one, one thing that one thing that can be good about um, about um, muddling through is that you can learn in. In, in the middle of the circumstance, it can also be good on the, I guess this is a way to, to uh, amplify the precedent point. One thing it can be good to do is once you feel like you've learned something, it can be good to try to lock that in a little bit. Uh, and, and amendment is a way to do that in the constitutional design context. Of course, ours is famously extremely hard to amend, um, <laughs> and which, which, of course, fends off certain depredations uh, by uh, executives. But, but it also means it would be very hard for us to sort of lock in a new, better understanding of something that we learned with the benefit of, of experience uh, from, from more contemporary circumstance. So how do you see the decision about whether to, to write something down about the apex criminal and how it should be treated versus um, amendability? Because I don't think you tackled that in the paper explicitly, but, but it sounds like it's worth, it's worth trying to get that sorted. Uh, no, I, I, the paper doesn't address that problem, which I think is a, a, a general and, and larger problem about constitutional design. As a general matter, I think that the empirical literature, my, my, my co-author on other papers, Tom Ginsberg, has written, I think, the best piece on this. As a general matter, a looser amendment rule tends to be associated with uh, uh, the survival of a constitutional regime. And our constitution is rare, not just because it has an extremely inflexible amendment rule, uh, by some counts, either the most or the second most uh, inflexible rule that uh, has been written down in the last hundred or so years. It's also unusual in that it's a particularly durable constitution. So it's an outlier. Generally, inflexible constitutions tend not to be durable. And it would be a mistake to look at our constitution and say, well, the, 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 the amendment rule here is actually wise, because once you generalize out from that single example, it turns out to be not the case. 
one reason it may not be the case is that the U.S. political system has generated other forms of entrenchment. Um, and I, I, I think here statutes are, in fact, quite important and quite capable of uh, carrying entrenchment. Right. So I think in the first uh, 50 or 60 years of uh, U.S. constitutional U.S. political history, uh, there were a series of quasi constitutional uh, compromises reached over sectional divides. Right. Th these are the, the compromise of 1820 and compromise of 1850 that played a constitutional role and yet were embodied solely in legislation. Right. And, and I think that there are. Um, that there was a, a, a New Deal settlement that was that was embodied in the legislation. Uh, there was a Great Society settlement that was embodied in the legislation. Um, you know, I, I think President Obama and his Congress tried to add to that Great Society uh, 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 legislative settlement with the Affordable Care Act. We'll see whether that uh, actually takes or whether it 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 is eroded away. Um, but I think that there are alternative forms of entrenchment and settlement that do not take a constitutional form in the US that are effectively acting as substitutes for what in other jurisdictions would be constitutional amendment. And if you can't, if, if you can't amend readily and you don't yet have uh, confidence that there are statutory practices that might come to be effective or, or sufficient effective substitutes, uh, for amendments, what should that do to your sense about whether saying less rather than saying more about apex criminality is is the better course? So, if you are if you are if you are skeptical that future generations either will be able to amend or will be able to come up with substitutes for amendment, I think that that would lead you to write down more rather than less. I think, though, that in practice, that the kind of skepticism toward future generations that your question assumes will often be unwarranted. It will often be the product of over-optimism about one's own uh, knowledge or foresight. And uh, a, uh, I, I tend to think that future generations are going to be smarter than uh, earlier generations, and so think that the the premise of the argument probably doesn't hold usually. And this goes to the you know how we measure success, and and uh -huh. one of the I think you have a few hearts in this paper. One 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 heart of this paper is your uh, disagreement with a welfareist approach to assessing success in constitution making, and a replacement with um, a, a you know a, a measure of of political culture. And I associate it more with kind of a virtue ethics approach. I, uh -huh. I, don't, I don't know if you do. Um, but do you, do you want to say something about that? Because I, I, I guess one, one obvious thing you might, one, one approach you might take, right, is that uh, if the Constitution is very hard to amend and people don't have good entrenching tools or you're afraid they won't in, in the future, then maybe you want to write down things where like the, uh, the costs of getting it wrong are perceived to be huge. Um, and, uh, even if the risk is small, so these are kind of small risk, huge costs, mm -hmm. you, you, you want to rule those out and you, you might do that either by being explicit about it or by diffusing power, uh, through several institutions. Can you give an example? Well, I, I'm thinking of, um, 
um, may, maybe creating kind of a generalized due process norm, which the judiciary has some management over. Like what you don't want is the people to be able to make one choice in one election that elects a totalitarian, which will then be the end of of all kinds of rights that you think are implicitly protected through the democratic system. Right. And so you diffuse certain democratic norms through, you know, through through branches or through uh, or, or through ombudsman or you have all kinds of kind of administrative uh, design techniques that you can uh, use to try to fend off the worst result. But you might also want to be explicit about those things. But that said, that's, that's just a, but, that, but yeah. that, that measures the success by just kind of counting up costs, potential costs and, re- yeah. and assessing yeah. risk. And, and you push back on that in the paper. And that's uh, but you can respond to either the substance of what I said or just to the measurement idea. I think both are would be interesting and illuminating. The, 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 just to be clear, this paper doesn't take on the, the question of, of what's the normative criteria by which one evaluates a constitution. Um, I, I, in other writings, I have made the argument that uh, uh, pure welfareism, pure, purely looking at social welfare, as it's understood by economists, is, is not a good metric because um, welfare isn't the only or even necessarily uh, the most important uh, end that a constitutional designer is concerned with. Um, I, you you can describe other ends such as in 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 democratic terms. Say, for example, it, it may be that the pursuit of welfare is compromised by institutions that have a democratic character. As, as I think, and there's no reason to think the democratic institutions will always pick. The 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 option that maximizes welfare. Quite the contrary. Um, you can also think about uh, alternative um, constitutional ends in the virtue ethics terms that you alluded to. The, what I would take away, or what I take away from uh, from that point, is is simply the fact that constitutions aim at multiple incommensurate normative ends. They characterize by normative plurality uh, rather than um, one single normative. Uh, uh, end. And it's exceedingly hard to figure out, maybe it's even impossible to figure out, how to further optimally, if if that's the word you want to use, a variety of normative ends that will often come into conflict, virtue, however defined, democracy, however defined, welfare, however defined. It's very hard to to, to figure out how one maximizes those over time under different conditions. And in other work, what I've argued is, given that it's really hard to figure out how to maximize, the constitutional designer ought to focus on a different problem, which is avoiding catastrophic and self-defeating choices, uh, which turns out to be quite difficult, right? It turns out to be <laughs> very, noticed. very I've hard. noticed, yeah. Um, uh, to, to figure out what it is that you're doing that's going to end up you know, being a a gunshot wound and in, in directly to your own foot. Uh, so I, it may be that, that that some kind of avoid worst case scenarios is is the best thing that the constitutional designer ought to do, right? Um, and then um, in the context of a, and this I think goes to the to the sort of the more part of your question as I heard it was about kind of well what should one do when one's in the midst of things and one already has a set of constitutional rules, including amendment rules, and they're not the ideal ones. And I, I think in those conditions, one still has the problem of normative plurality and the difficulty of figuring out how to, how to trade off between different norms. 
and also the problem of uh, uh, that, that you can't change. There's all these institutional design margins that you're just stuck with, uh, and so you're you're constantly uh, managing problems through techniques of the second best, um, and the solutions that you're getting are going to be second or third rate. And, and, and you have to figure out, well, you know, is this the best solution that I can come up with, given that there's all of these different values at stake, given that, that in certain ways my hands are tied, but in other ways they're not? I think that those are very, very difficult questions. I, I don't have any kind of best way of resolving them. Um, one example in this context is, is if you think that um, the Constitution is non-exclusive, uh, about the punishment of, of senior uh, executive officers, um, or you think that um, the House and the Senate, which are tasked with impeach with drawing up articles of impe- impeachment and then impeaching, are institutionally ill-designed to conduct investigations that are required to do that, what kind of institutional innovation should one have, right? And, and this is a debate that we saw with respect to the Ethics and Government Act and the Independent Council, and then the uh, regulations that were issued in 1999 uh, that enable special counsel. There are questions about the scope and the operation of those kind of prosecutors, the extent of political control, uh, and the like. And and, and um, I, I have my view about how those disputes ought to be resolved, but maybe the point here is it, it's precisely that kind of dispute about what and how one supplements constitutional forms that needs to be had. And it's not as if there's any easy or quick way of answering those questions. Well, what I read you to be arguing that instead of focusing on predicting what might happen, assigning costs to those things, and then choosing mm-hmm. the constitutional text, which leads to you know uh, the, the maximum possible welfare, mm-hmm. that we should be concerned with constituting a robust political culture, which is responsive to pluralism, so that decisions will be made well in the future, um, uh, not necessarily even in a welfare sense even then. And and as an example for this particular paper of apex criminality, like if you look at it that way, I, I read you to be arguing that um, uh, there are a couple of dangers that you might try to avoid in crafting constitutional rules. One is kind of the legalist uh, influence on political rhetoric. This is the you know, mm-hmm. the criminalization of political differences idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other, uh, that's on the one hand. The other, On the other hand, you might be worried about politicizing legal proceedings, right? So you spend some time in the paper on both of those problems. And and do I take it right that your focus on, consti- on constitution making to constitute a robust political culture, that that would lead you to focus on these two dangers and to try to somehow interpolate between them or to address them in a way that you might not if you were just thinking about, I don't know, certain future imagined paradigm cases and trying to resolve them in advance? I'm not sure I'd draw the, the distinction that you, you just drew between the paradigm case method and, and trying to n- navigate between what, what strikes me as two distinctive risks. Well, let me, let me, yeah, let me clarify because I, so I, I imagine that if I were a real welfareist, what I might, uh-huh. I might be trying to, I might really be trying to think of what might happen in the future, as many cases as I can, and maybe distributionally or, uh, yeah. you know, probabilistically, mm-hmm. and assigning yeah. various costs to them, maybe even assigning a certain margin of error. I, I don't know exactly how you would do this. This is part of your point, right? That epistemically, yeah. this is very difficult. Yeah. Um, and and so I might be thinking of certain like paradigm cases that are similar to what's arisen, or like I might be thinking of a future totalitarian leader who wins an election. 
and yeah. I want to respond particularly to that. That's a focus on a result and on writing rules that will dictate results uh, uh, in response to those things happening. Whereas I take it that your concern is focusing on how people will be talking to one another and how uh, and how the rules we write influence the ways that they reach decisions rather than what those decisions should be in response to those cases. And that's why I kind of take it as more of a virtue ethics kind of approach, right? You're, you're more concerned that people kind of discuss and re- decide together in the right way rather than making the right decisions. So I think you're pressing me uh, to be more exact about the, uh, the thinking process or the analytic process that the constitutional designer engages in. And the way that I was thinking about the two dynamics that I describe is here are two ways, here are two processes whereby the wheels come off the vehicle. Um, Here are two ways in which the effort to hold a leader to account, uh, they don't just fail, but in failing, they poison in some fashion the larger political system. They end up with a, 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 a political culture that's calcified and legalized, or you end up with with investigative institutions that are themselves politicized, right? And so the way that I was thinking about them was in terms of a process that leads to a a bad uh, uh, equilibrium for the institutions that the constitution creates. And and I think that that's not inconsistent with thinking about things from a paradigm case perspective, because I think you can uh, frame the paradigm case method as, uh, or the, the, the paradigm case perspective as in, in the following way. Given what I think is likely to happen, given the kind of problem that I think that the political system is likely to confront, which institutional process of dysfunction am I more worried about? Am I more worried about the politicization of uh, or the, the legalization of political uh, differences? Or am I more worried about the capture and the corruption of investigative institutions, right? So I think you can you can approach this problem of which process of, of institutional degradation ought I to be more concerned with by thinking about what 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 kinds of cases do I think are more likely to arise and therefore to pitch the system into a particular kind of dysfunction. Yeah. And to be clear, I'm, I'm not suggesting that when um, e- even from this um, kind of constitution of political culture perspective that you would yeah. not use your like any act of constitution making is going to involve the use of imagination. Right. To, to think about what could arise in the future and how to solve those problems. I, I guess what I saw you doing is is issuing an evaluation of the resolution of fixed paradigm cases as the as the ultimate metric for whether you've done a good job as a constitution designer, right? Whereas, you know, the 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 kind of the uh, political culturist, if that's the the view here, would would look to paradigm cases as kind of a guide for the kinds of things that might happen, and then to design institutions that talk, evaluate, and decide in ways that would both kind of do a good job with those cases, but but would would be robust in and of itself. You know, those conversations, those decisions would be robust in and of themselves, rather than whether what you wrote down. So this would distinguish um, a constitution that just decided those paradigm cases as a matter of substance on the one hand, from one which constituted institutions which were likely to resolve those in a robust way on the other. Like yours would favor the, the latter and not the former. 
I, I think that's right, and I, but I think that the that thinking about the cases that are likely to arise is is part and parcel of uh, right. a, 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 a thinking about that wise institutional design uh, question. But I do think I do think that that thinking about the ways in which institutions go off the rails is part of thinking about how you set up the institutions in a way that they are stable in a good equilibrium for uh, as long as you can manage it. So I want to talk about the, the, the Scylla and Charybdis that you guys have, have created, where on the one hand, you could have uh, the legalization of your political culture, and on the other hand, you could have the capturing corruption of the law enforcement process. The, the second one sounds so many orders of magnitude worse to me personally, um, and and creates... Um, Which one is worse? Say that one more time. The, the, the capture and corruption of the law enforcement process, yeah. the politicization of the, of the legal apparatus itself. Uh, so, for example, I think in terms of economic development, if you look at the, the kind of... Uh, my sense of the history of economic development in various places and times, um, that, that having a, a law enforcement uh, or, or legal process that, that is uh, highly politicized is is devastating for uh, uh, economic, uh, vibrant economic life and economic development uh, and prosperity. Uh, so that's an, that's an illustration of the way in which I think the second is just, you know, sort of, it's really hard for me personally to overstate how much worse I think the second one is than the first. Uh, that your your political culture getting legalized. So clearly, you think they're more equally balanced. So I'm eager to hear what I'm missing in the in the problems of the first one, at least. I, 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 the paper tries not to take a position on that. Um, I think that there are people who view the first problem as being much graver than the second problem, and I, this is this is a bit of a cop out, but. <laughs> for, the, for the purpose of the paper, I was just trying to take those people seriously. Um, and so I think, for example, Alan Dershowitz falls into that category, right? or, or at least the, the Dershowitz who's been writing recently falls into that category. Uh, and so I, I don't think the paper says anything about the magnitude of the, of the two problems or um, makes any assumptions in that regard. It, it, it's just supposed to speak to people who have different judgments on that. Um, you know, I, I I would need to think through what the comparative risks are. Um, you know, the more important point that I want to emphasize in the paper is that these are, in some sense, symmetrical or complementary risks, and that um, they they attend they're risks that attend an either or choice, such that you can never be in a uh, you can never avoid entirely all risks. You just have to choose which kind of risks that you're you're exposing yourself to. Um, the the one point that I would make is that I th I think the counter argument to your point I think it was Joe who's just talking is China where you have a dispute resolution system for official corruption that is pretty pretty uh, uh, much controlled top-down by uh, Xi Jinping and the Politburo, and that has been used um, to consolidate political authority. Um, and in the last uh, five or six years, you, you've also seen a, actually a, 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 an institutional thickening of um, courts and administrative tribunals that are meant to resolve non-political disputes. 
So the Chinese example is actually an instance in which you, you have completely politicized courts and increasingly non-politicized courts sitting side by side. Sometimes I think with even the same person acting as the judge in both instances, um, seemingly without the system collapsing in either one direction or the other in the way that you suggested, right? So, so China might be a counterexample to your um, to your worry. Although I, I will concede that I'm not a Mandarin speaker, so my capacity to speak to these things is limited. Right. Um, now that's interesting, and I and I would uh, it would be helpful for me to learn more about um, about that uh, those phenomena that are that are going on right now. Um, uh, I, I suppose. Um, I haven't heard as many. Um, I haven't heard as many arguments about why uh, having one's political culture become overly legalized mm-hmm. um, is is a is sort of a really grave harm. Well, I mean, lock her up. It, you know, is one. You know, I mean, it, if it became routine for political differences, you know, every time someone leaves office. For the former occupants, so, then people hang on. People don't leave power. If right. So here's the, but here's what I'm relying on implicitly. Without and until so I could be more explicit about if you, if you, when you have faith in the independence and professionalism of the of the law of law enforcement actors, the fact that some political actors may either occasionally or or even maybe more than occasionally right you're relying on the connection between these two things but yeah. right make yeah. some sort of references like that you say yeah of course you could say that at a rally but but it's that's as far as it's going to go right because if you can if you if huge if right if you can rely on the independence and professionalism of those law enforcement folks but that that, that assumes that the, that the relevant institute the punishing institution is a, it assumes that it is independent and not apolitical and professionally oriented. And I can imagine a whole a number of different institutional formulations where that fails, right? So the Chinese example is one in which you have non-independent, politically oriented courts and apolitical independent courts almost operating from the same bench, right? Um, uh, you can imagine instances in which the, the 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 criminalization of political differences leads to the regularization of impeachment, right? So this is um, a, a, a worry of early commentators on the federal constitution, on our constitution, including Joseph Story and Alexis de Tocqueville, was that this is this is what would happen with impeachment, right? That impeachment was so easy, they thought that, and 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 and. Impeachment it doesn't have personal consequences in the form of imprisonment or the like. Um, the, 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 their expectation was that impeachment would become routine, and rather than working through political differences, you just see side A impeach side B's leaders and side B impeach side A's leader, etc., etc., etc. So they they there was a real worry among I mean, if not the founding generation, then the kind of the the early republic generation that that story and then later the Tocqueville are part of, derivatively for the Tocqueville's case. There was a worry about the the legalization of political differences uh in a in a in a fashion that would become uh disabling for the policy. Right. But but by legalization, you mean the the infection of a political process with legal like talk as justification. 
right? I mean, it, no, it's, no, no. I, I, I mean, well, I think their worry was that was that was that it wouldn't just be talk that you would actually have impeachment, right? But but if there were just impeachments on frankly on on frank political grounds, that doesn't seem to me to be a matter of kind of the infection of of political differences with you know with the justificatory they, framework of legalism yeah, but right they they, they didn't think so they they thought they thought that impeachment they thought of impeachment um as something that inflicted a harm on the person being impeached right and that that turns out to be quite common uh, as a belief um and they thought that a that a political culture in which um side a comes into power impeaches everybody in side b so B comes into power and does the same with respect to, uh, to side A, was a dysfunctional and highly undesirable political culture. And certainly the drafting history, uh, to the degree that the, there was that proposal to include as a ground of impeachment maladministration and a rejection of that as, as operative language, uh, which seems to me to grow out of the same fear, right, is, is an effort to say, you know, Standing for regular election is is not a legalistic procedure the way that impeachment is a legalistic procedure. Um, so we've got elections are the political procedure. Impeachment mm-hmm. is a more legalistic procedure. Mm-hmm. And, and that mm-hmm. is the sense in which you would have legalistic stuff right. becoming, in, you know, politics becoming infected by legalistic stuff. If we resorted yeah. too much yeah. to impeachment yeah. too, too frequently. I, 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 think that's a, I think that's a good way of putting it. So... <laughs> How if if you you've set up these two um, uh, these two risks uh, and you've been uh, uh, by by trying to lay them out and get everyone to be sensitive to the fact that they're both there um, you're you're being uh, neutral as between them in the context of this project so if we're if one wanted to think about how think a little bit more in a forward looking way okay but I want to get my hands around which one of them might actually be worse um, what kind of question is that. To, to, to worry about which one might be worse is it is it just super contingent on you know the the political culture in the country at the time you're drafting your constitution does it could it be made a little bit less contingent by by looking at you know what we know about human behavior more generally or or what kind of question is influenced that question? by mass media this was one of my last questions was you know yeah, reminded yeah, of this old yeah. uh, man and Ornstein article about you know let's just let's just face it the problem is Republicans do you, do you remember this Wall Street Journal editorial <laughs> right, right, right. like because these were two well, like, I think they have two books on it now. yeah yeah, yeah. Since, since then but this was the, my first encounter with it and and you know and Fox News is maybe so, like right. so you have all of these very particular things about this moment in time where there's an alignment of a particular kind of thinking with one particular set of ideological beliefs like how do you Sorry, and just no, to yeah. put my priors on the table, I mean, the re- w- another way I could talk about why I think the um, the the um, legalization of politics is is f- f- not nearly as worrisome as the politicization of of law enforcement um, or, or 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 you know the the, the machinery of the law is mm-hmm. is comes from in part. Um, a, one of the things that I think, and he comes up all the time on the show because I'm here, um, is Lon Fuller. Um, that that some of his some of his insights about, um, and and in your paper, it's in the mm-hmm. person of Av Dicey, who's talking mm-hmm. about the 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 critical importance to the rule of law that the rulers be ruled by law and be brought to heel under the law. 
mm-hmm. as needed, right? So, it, so, and in Fuller, it's framed in terms of reciprocity, uh, that the rulers have to be subject to the same rules. And here it's more identity. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and so, the, to, again, that's wrapped up, for me personally, that's wrapped up with the way I think through the process, okay, uh, having some legalization of politics is, is totally okay compared to people beginning to doubt whether a ruler could ever be subject to valid legal process, which is the second risk. So that's why I think it's important to try to figure out if what kind of question is the question, which of these two really is worse? I think there's no way of answering that question in the abstract. Ah, I, I, think okay. it, I think it was perfectly possible for a Joseph Story or to Tateville to say, look, the, the thing that I am most worried about is the the legalization of politics. And in part, I think that that, that judgment is plausible because the, it's a judgment that takes place against the context of not particularly robust prosecutorial or investigative instruments, right? It's, it, there's not much of a state in comparison to what one has today mm, true. that one needs to worry about um, uh, getting corrupted. I, you know, I think, and I'll, I'll, you know, uh, my colleague and I, Tom Ginsburg, have a, a whole book uh, called How to Save Your Constitutional Democracy that's coming out later this year on this. So, Not a moment um, too soon. Not a moment too soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I, oh, I don't know about that. Um, uh, so, and our, our priors are on the table in the book. And so I, I won't, I, I'll, I, I won't, I won't hide the prior now. Um, I, my own view um, is that there are um, uh, substantial and grave reasons to be concerned about um, the uh, subordinating of previously independent institutions uh, for the purpose of stifling democratic competition. Um, I think that uh, this is something that we've seen in other nations, other jurisdictions around the world, and indeed our the the, the book that Tom and I um, have. Is, is a work on comparative constitutionalism. So it's really thinking about how, how the processes of democratic decline occur in other countries and, and, and are the, the, the motors or the frictions on democratic decline that we see elsewhere, uh, you know, what's present here and what's absent here. Um, I, I think it is very, very reasonable to, to see um, the risk today of politicization of law enforcement institutions, not just not just as a standalone risk, but as a a risk to the health of democracy as a going concern, as being a, a grave one. Um, I, I think that the the concern, when framed in either uh, Fullerian or or Dicean uh, uh, terms, becomes a little bit more complicated. Only in as much as because of background constitutional rules, such as political control over prosecution, to a certain extent, uh, background rules about qualified and absolute immunity as constraints upon um, civil liability, um, and background constraints upon the ability to sue the president as opposed to suing under the APA. Um, We already have a system in which, to a certain extent, particularly federal actors, although this is actually, I think, true of many state actors too, with respect to things that are unlawful, but not starkly and manifestly unlawful, 
already stand above the law. We already have a system in which those who govern us are immune from legal process in many, many important ways. And it would, I think, think that there's kind of there's a there's a rhetorical problem or a normative problem. I'm not sure which. In thinking about a world in which the system is already, from a again from the perspective of a Fuller or a Dicey, deeply flawed, and, and yet there seems to be on the horizon a step change that makes the system an order of magnitude worse. Right? How, how do you how do you think about or talk about that kind of a, a situation? Um, but but I, I think that that's a plausible description of the situation that we're in. Maybe uh, one thing we haven't talked about, maybe we're getting close to winding up, so I don't want to take too much of your time. But um, and this wasn't in the paper either. What do you think about the role of federalism in all this? Because the the constitutional designer in a federal system, when it comes to crimes, um, at least some crimes, has to it seems to me has to take account for what other sovereign actors that are subcomponents mm-hmm. of the system will do. And and in our particular case, for example. Um, there is the possibility of criminal liability in New York for either Trump himself or members of his of his family or right. other members of his organization. And that seems a, a, a very kind of complicated interaction. Like even if we, if we were even if we had thought about yeah. this as a paradigm case as designers yeah. 100 years ago, right. um, how would you because you don't know what New York is going to do in the and future. And it also other interacts states. with yeah. the pardon power and this self-pardon garbage. Yep. You know, which is what I think it is. Um, well, but, especially but, pro- prospective self-pardon, right? <laughs> is, you know, right. But that but, it's just further complicates the the question about do, if you've got different sovereigns at, on the scene, right? right. Um, pardoning the pardon power only makes this even harder to figure. But see, out, it's but, also implicit, right? I mean, this is there's nothing. I, I don't think there's anything in the Constitution about this. I'm not one who carries one around in my pocket. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, although I guess we all do these days with our phones, anyway. Right. Um, uh, it, it, it seems pretty clear that, that New York couldn't like arrest and imprison a sitting president, right? I mean, it, it, that, that seems like somehow implicit in the federal structure that there has to be an impeachment and removal first. But uh, maybe people, you know, I haven't read a lot of papers about this. Um, so, so there is at least that. So that maybe there are other implicit, I don't know, federalism creates a lot of puzzles that have to be solved on the spot. And, and this maybe is just one of them. I think that's right. I don't, I don't think that there's a. I think there's no direct answer to that question. I think that there are um, that there is a, there are lines of cases that speak to the extent to which state courts can exercise control over federal actors. Uh, that the that the, the people who, who who teach or take fed courts will do a series of these cases around the habeas power, of course, yeah, um, and the like, um, and and. Um, I, I, I tend to think that based on those cases, it's unlikely that you would have a state exercising um, the arrest power with respect to particularly a president. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I think that it's not particularly unlikely to have um, particularly a president's non-official uh, activities being scrutinized by a state court. I, I actually think that there's that the, the, for example, the the debates about the the, the Zervos v. Trump litigation, or the um, the AG's investigation into the uh, Trump Foundation, I, I, my own view is that is that they don't present hard problems because they're not about um, the president acting in his official capacity, uh, and therefore there's really no justification for constraining the um, the, the 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 state judicial. 
um, apparatus in those cases. It does. Yeah. Go Until ahead. Until you Sorry. get to remedy questions. Those might get more complicated, but. Um... Yeah. Yeah. For example, can the, can, can the state court call the president in contempt when he declines to sit for a deposition? Right. That's a hard question. I don't know the answer to that. But you think it, it, like an easy question is cabinet secretary is found in the state of Kansas standing with a knife over a bloody body. Like, you know, there it seems like there should be. Uh, well, I, I know what would happen. They'd be arrested and taken to jail. And then there would be a, maybe a constitutional crisis. But like, you know, the I, I don't know. I, and the more I talk about it, the yeah. more, I, I they, they would be yeah, detained. I have no doubt about yes. the fact that they would yes. be detained. Yes. But, but I don't yes. know how people would talk about that right. issue. Well, yeah, and 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 we we get here into the into another federal courts issue, which is a, 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 a there is an old case called Indre Nagel, which involved a, a a federal marshal who was protecting Supreme Court Justice Stephen Fields and shoots somebody uh, who was threatening Fields, um, and and then is is arrested and prosecuted in state court, and then gets a habeas from a federal court. <laughs> Um, uh, so, so you do get, you do get, uh, we're, we're in, we're in the nether worlds of federal courts, uh, as which, we so uh, often wind up on this show. <laughs> I'm not convinced that's, that's always the, 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 the place to find clarity. Yeah. I, I only bring it up and I don't, I don't mean to complicate it more than it needs to be, but it seems to me that it is a, a critical question of constitutional design is what other subcomponents of your system will do, especially if they have a, a degree of sovereignty. Um, I, I think that's yeah. right. And, 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 and um, this is a topic that, that Tom and I address in our book a little bit. And, and I, I think we come down as being agnostic. Uh, we, we say that there are ways in which, particularly with respect to the health of the national democracy, uh, states can play a, a, a useful role, but states can also play an undermining role. So it's important to remember that um, you know, the United States at least through the late 1960s, early 1970s, was characterized by what, what political scientists call subnational authoritarianism through much of the South, right? There, there was uh, a lockout in the South of much of the population. Um, there was one-party rule under the Democrats under much of the South, in much of the South. So uh, the, federalism is a two-edged sword, as it is in, in many areas, and uh, one should be cautious about generalizations. Uh, so um, uh, thank you, Aziz, for taking all this time to talk to us. One, one thing I wanted people just to mention, and we, we have show notes, and so we'll put this in the show notes for listeners, but um, the, I, I take it that you've been part of this comparative constitutions sort of data collection project, and the website for that is a really terrific website. So people are, who just want to learn more about constitutions all over the world and through time should really consult that resource. Yeah, and I, 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 I am not directly a part of that, but I, I use it and, and piggyback on it quite were you Were you not at, at any point in time a part of the project? I know Tom Ginsburg. I, maybe I'm just no, it's, getting it's wires Tom, crossed. It's Tom's project. Okay. Um, well, um, your frequent co-author, Tom Ginsburg's <laughs> website about comparative constitutions is really great. And um, and and this this paper is the sort of thing, again, if you're thinking just in more abstract terms about how to design constitutions and the things she might be trying to figure out, um, one good thing, another good way to approach it would be, well, OK, let me go look at a bunch of constitutions and see what the yeah. range of solutions are and um, yeah. and get try to get a handle on which ones, where, when, um, uh, tried to tackle problems in various ways. And this thing lets you do that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anything else that we should have talked about 
Aziz, that that you feel no. like, oh boy, those jokers, they didn't get to the most important no, no, thing. No, this was, this was very comprehensive. <laughs> okay, great. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I no, really appreciate thank it. You, thank you very much for engaging with the piece. I really, really enjoyed it.